Hi, thanks for listening. In 20 seconds or less, I wanted to ask if you would consider supporting the show with a one-time donation of $1 to $3. The funds go to subscription fees, equipment upkeep, and a general sense of well-being. Links in the show notes. And again, thanks for listening. Okay, on with the show. Chapter 3 The horde was turning south, and that meant there would not be another vantage point within his lethal range for a while. Not until they circled back and started heading northeast again. He hated the delay, but it gave him time to forage, to gather the things he needed, something he didn't have time to do when the horde was within his sights. As an astronomer might chart the elliptical path of a comet, Jacob knew the meandering, circuitous path of the horde, and knew they would be coming back to him. Jonathan Mann had received his liberation that morning. Jacob knew Mann to be a hard worker who loved his family. As a lawman, Jacob always looked for something to remember people by, both the good and the bad. A cop never knew when some bit of memory or information about a person might come in handy. Man rode a Harley. His appearance could convey that he was a biker of the redneck variety, and maybe someone you would step around. But that would be wrong. Jacob remembered Man as a person who was quick with a joke, with a big heart. He had a great relationship with his sister, which is what impressed Jacob. It was like they were friends. Brother and sister, but friends. Jacob had a smallish family, so the whole idea of a tightly knit clan was alien to him. Jonathan Mann was part of a big clan, a tight family, a good family. The notion of rioting and looting during a national catastrophe was not a universal one. Consequently, when Jacob foraged, it was not unheard of to find stores with good quantities of stock still on their shelves. The contagion wasn't like your hurricane or earthquake. Those catastrophes tended to draw people out in their aftermath, which usually involved a lack of law and order. The contagion kept people in. Nobody was risking infection. The fact that it was never reported that the contagion was airborne didn't matter. People were scared. When people did come out, it was to run for their lives from those already infected like they did in countless cities across the country, like they did in Hendricksville. People running don't have time to loot. Still, sometimes you could find stuff in homes that you couldn't find in stores. Jacob stared out his windshield into the cul-de-sac. It was a wealthy neighborhood with big houses. The cul-de-sac had only three, with the biggest house sitting on a rise in the middle, slightly higher than the ones on either side. Jacob eased the jeep into the cul-de-sac and drove around, pointing it nose out. Before exiting, he scanned the way he had come. Nothing moved. Satisfied, he got out. He left the keys in the ignition and the door opened. He wanted easy access, just in case. Early on, 
when he thought that he wasn't the only one left in the world, and it wasn't just him in the horde. He was concerned that someone might try to steal his vehicle. He had planned for such an eventuality by installing a remote kill switch in the engine. He kept the trigger in his pocket, but there was nobody else. There was only him and the horde that took his town, took everything that mattered. While he still carried the remote trigger, the theft of his vehicle was no longer a concern. He pulled down the tailgate and grabbed his most trusted gun, his favorite gun. It was a Ruger Mark I. Every time he went to it, his thoughts turned to his best friend, Wallace Thompson. Wally. The gun had belonged to his dad. Martin Thompson worked in pest control, and one of the trade secrets of his vocation was the Ruger Mark I with a suppressor. Martin used subsonic rounds. A homeowner could be standing right behind Martin when he fired it, and the only thing they would hear was the metal sound of the slide moving backwards and forwards on the butter-smooth action and the spent brass bouncing off the floor a second later. When the world slipped over the edge, Jacob had gone to see Wally, to check on him. When he reached his house, it was too late. Wally and Jordan, his wife, lay dead in their yard. Each had visible bite wounds on their bodies and a twenty-two long rifle hole in their heads. Eight of the undead lay scattered about the home, inside and out, all bearing similar wounds. There were four inside, but Jacob took care of them. He had picked up the Mark I from the ground near Wally. Jacob traded a promise for the gun. He promised he would never forget. Jacob carried the pistol in his right hand. With his left, he grabbed a crowbar, then went to the house. At the door, he set the crowbar down and tried the handle. He always tried the handle first. Locked. To the left and right of the door were glass panels. Taking the crowbar, he smashed the glass to the left of the handle, then reached in and worked the deadbolt. He put the crowbar down, opened the door, and assumed a two-handed firing stance. He wore a watch on his left hand, on the inside of his wrist, just below the thumb, so he could see it while in the firing position. He waited. Thirty seconds. Forty seconds. Fifty seconds. A minute. Nothing. He went in. There were no lights on, but that did not surprise him. With nobody to change the bulbs, they would have all burned out long ago. What did still surprise him to this day was the power hadn't gone out yet. As he entered the house, a wide hall led back to a kitchen area. To the right of the hall was a stairway leading up to the second floor. He stood on the foyer and looked left and right. On either side were large rooms. The room on the left was a formal dining room. Nothing in there but fine china and silver. Jacob had no use for either, so he went right. A step down led him into a den. Overstuffed leather recliners and a couch were all oriented around a huge 80-inch flat screen mounted on the wall. The screensaver was on, and a family portrait bobbed around the black screen. Jacob approached and stared at the family in the photo, his eyes following its meandering path. The woman was beautiful, but not trophy. Three teenagers, two boys and a girl, stood in back of their parents, smiling like they meant it. 
Jacob became transfixed by the wandering image of family, of home. His eyes caught movement behind him, reflected in the screen. But it was too late. The runner came at him fast. It slammed into him, the momentum knocking him to the ground. His pistol was jarred from his hand and skidded across the floor. It was everything he could do to get his hands up and around the thing's neck. Jacob stared up into its ruined face, could feel the decayed mass pressing him to the floor. The smell, which from a distance he had gotten used to, threatened to overpower him at such close quarters. He could feel his stomach roll and felt like he was going to be sick. He strained to keep its biting mouth at bay, knowing he did not have much time, that his strength would begin to fail, that the undeads wouldn't. Inch by precious inch, the foul thing would close the gap until it bit him, a line through his own name. Let it. The words flashed in his mind. At first his subconscious railed at the idea, his will to live rejecting it altogether. He stared into the thing's milky eyes and recognized the man in the screensaver photo. Jacob turned his head and looked to the screen, but the family was gone. The vibrations of the attack had awakened the television. Only color bars glared back at him. The colors merged and swam in his vision as tears for all that was lost welled up in his eyes. His will to live began to weaken. The resolve to let the inevitable take its course strengthened. His arms bent ever so slightly, and the chomping mouth got that much closer. The seconds passed, and Jacob closed his eyes and began to relax his arms. Sensing that it would soon feast, the runner gnashed at the air in a frenzy. Somewhere, in the back of the house, a cuckoo clock sounded the noon hour. It was then that the television spoke to Jacob Miller. This is Nicole Bennett. We are survivors. To anybody that can hear us, and can get here, we offer you refuge. Jacob blinked at the sound, and he craned his head to look at the screen. Shock racked his system at what he saw. A woman's face, framed with auburn hair, filled the screen. Her green eyes stared back at him. Her mouth moved, but he could not make out the words through the hissing and gasping of the thing on top of him. He began to hyperventilate, but curiosity renewed his strength. With the biter a mere inch from his face, Jacob squeezed with his left hand. He worked his right hand up to the side of the thing's head and pushed. Seconds passed as the two were joined in mortal combat. There was a crack, and the runner's head lulled to the side. Its spinal column severed. It went limp, and Jacob pushed it off of him. He jumped up and ran to the television. He slowed his breathing, and the disorientation passed. Words began to reach his ears. West of Denver in the Rocky Mountains. Hit the I-70 and look for the signs. As we get more people to join us, we try to clear the roads as best we can. But we're asking, if you're able, do what you can to clear a little as you go. It will make the trip for those after you a bit easier. Jacob smiled as elation filled him. A light, long dimmed, rose up in his eyes and lingered. He listened as the woman spoke of supplies they had, of things they still might need. But mostly he listened to her talk of other people and surviving. It felt like a dream, one in which he didn't know he was asleep, where love could be found or rediscovered. In this dream, it was safe and warm. Jacob blinked, and his smile faded. 
Waking from this dream was a violation, the present reality an assault. He felt the dream's deception split the fissure in his soul a little wider. Not real, he said. Jacob backed away from the flat screen and turned. Retrieving his pistol from the floor, he left the way he came in. In the den, Nicole Bennett finished her broadcast. This is not a loop. We are real. We broadcast updates on all channels, every day, at noon and midnight, mountain time. Stay tuned and get to us if you can. This is Nicole Bennett, signing off. Chapter 4 Beverly crept along the I-70. The big truck meandered through and around the mechanical remains of a lost world. She fought sleep and needed to stop. But stopping meant not driving, meant time to think. She cut a glance over at Tommy. He sat catatonic in the passenger seat, staring straight ahead. They came upon a luxury bus sitting at a shallow angle across the westbound lanes, facing east. On its side were emblazoned the words, The Swinging Dicks, Texas Swing Meets Punk. Four names were painted under four grinning hayseed-looking figures, all wearing big ten-gallon cowboy hats. Max Dick, Chuck Dick, Hank Dick, and Lenny Dick. The four smiling faces only mocked Beverly's pain. She hit the gas and moved around the bus. Ahead of her, the road opened up. Fatigue pulled at her, and her head bobbed. The truck drifted, coming dangerously close to rolling down the embankment. The movement jerked her awake, and she brought the truck to a skidding stop in the safety lane. She was so tired it hurt. Reaching down, she shut off the engine. The seconds ticked by, and she sat motionless, mirroring her son's thousand-mile stare. We're going to stop for the night, Tommy, okay? Mommy needs to sleep a bit, she said, her voice flat and monotone. Feeling herself begin to slip away, some part of her tried to hold on. She looked down at the radio and turned it on. A low hiss of static was all that sounded. She checked her watch and saw that it was only 9.30. The next broadcast was at midnight, and she wanted desperately to be awake for it. The twice-daily messages were a ritual that she needed now more than ever, to tell herself that she had not been left alone with her child in a dead world. She settled down in her seat and gently pulled Tommy to her, for his comfort and hers. Tommy's body was rigid as she held him. He did not try to sleep, but only stared out the windshield with unblinking eyes. Beverly closed her eyes and almost prayed she would not dream of Mark. It would just make waking up that much more painful. Beverly had been asleep for two hours and fifteen minutes when something moved on the road in front of the truck. Tommy blinked and watched the figure stumble forward in a loping gait towards them. He pulled away from his mother. Her arm flopped from his shoulder and hung loosely at her side. His movement was not enough to wake her, tired as she was. Tommy put his hands on the dashboard and eased himself closer to the windshield, almost pressing his nose to the glass. 
Moving to the passenger door, he eased it open and climbed out. Beverly jumped at the sound of the passenger door slamming shut. She sat up. Disoriented, she rubbed her eyes. It was seconds before she realized where she was, and where Tommy wasn't. She looked out the passenger side window, and then her head darted to the front as she caught movement. Under the moon's pale light, she saw Tommy run down the safety lane towards a shambling figure. Tommy! she said, fumbling for the door handle. She flung the door open and was almost out before she remembered to grab the crowbar tucked behind her seat. Her breath came in gasps as she flung herself from the truck and bolted into a run behind Tommy. Tommy, stop! she said, giving chase. Her breath caught in her throat as, to her horror, she saw the walker reach out and grab Tommy in a bear-hug embrace. It buried its face in Tommy's neck, her voice a blood-curdling wail as she ran up on the two. Raising her crowbar high, she was about to bring it crashing down on the thing's head when a voice cut through her terror. Bev, stop! Mark said, holding his right hand in a defensive gesture high in the air and clinging to Tommy with his left. Beverly froze, the crowbar poised above her head. She stared with open mouth and wide eyes into the shadowed face of her husband. His clothes were ripped and torn, and he was covered in gore. I'm all right, it's okay, he said. Beverly blinked as the slow realization washed over her. She dropped the crowbar and ran crying into Mark's embrace. Jacob made his way back through the woods to his vehicle. He had known where the horde was going to be. What he didn't like was that to rendezvous with the horde, he had to walk. The hike had been an arduous one, taking him across land and through woods. The vantage point was somewhere his vehicle could not travel, which meant he had to lug his gear and his rifle with him. The horde would eventually come out again to more accessible vantage points, but Jacob could not wait for that would not allow himself to miss an opportunity to do what he must. Only this time had been like so many other times. No shot. No line through a name. No aid and service rendered. He was moving through the trees back towards the I-70 and his truck when he heard the sound. He guessed it was a walker, but not more than one. He debated investigating, as doing so would take him off his path. It was not so much the fact of leaving one of those things on his back trail that concerned him, the nagging notion that maybe, just maybe, he would recognize it, compelled him, that in failing to investigate, he would fail to cross a name from his ledger, fail to make the most of his second chance. He abandoned his original path and began to track the lone walker. He had not picked up any sounds from the walker for several minutes, and assumed it had reached the road. He was not concerned that he would lose it. If it turned east or west, he would be able to see it on the highway. If not, then he would know that it had crossed the median and entered the woods on the other side. He would have to be careful then. It was rare for him to see one alone like this, but he figured it must have gotten away from the main body, which is why he could not risk it getting away from him. Inside the truck, 
Beverly and Tommy sat and stared at Mark. What happened, Mark? We thought you were... Tears welled up in Beverly's eyes. Tommy leaned forward and threw himself into an embrace. Mark put his arm around his son. Well, uh, it turned into a running battle. I kept shooting them until I was empty, but there was just so many. I was able to get to an office in the back, but the door didn't have a lock, you know? I pushed a desk in front of the door, but they piled up against it, kept pushing. The door started to open, and... Mark looked up at Beverly. Frenzy mixed with joy danced in his eyes. I had to run. There was a cage or a supply room. That's what saved me. I found an old tool chest, a long screwdriver. They surrounded the cage, but couldn't get at me. Their weight pressed against the door, kept it from opening. I was able to use the screwdriver. One at a time. When they fell, the ones behind would trample them or push them out of the way. I thought it was going to go on forever. But it didn't, he said. Mark rubbed his face and ran his fingers through his hair. When it was quiet, I pushed my way out. They were everywhere, piled up, scattered all over the room. I just ran, ran out of there. I cut through the woods. I figured the highway would be jammed and that maybe if I didn't stop, I could... I came out on the highway and picked a direction. Fresh tears welled up in Mark's eyes as he looked at Beverly and hugged his son. When I saw the truck, I knew. I knew. Jacob could see the road through the tree line up ahead. Parked by the side of the road was a big electric repair truck. It was dirty and smeared with gore. From the dents and detritus covering it, Jacob figured it had suffered an attack, from which he was confident there would be no survivors. He moved toward it, intending to use it for cover as he scanned up and down the highway. Approaching the embankment, he prepared to climb to the road, but stopped when he heard a sound. Instinctively, he crouched low, lying on his back against the embankment. He strained his ears and tried to listen. Words. He froze and his breathing became erratic. Familiar words. A mountain facility with food and water. There is housing in the valley below. We've been trying to clear that out as well, but it's been hard. Some of the houses still have their former occupants. One of the things we are asking newcomers to do, if they can, is join a clear team. It's dangerous work going house to house, but you won't be alone. If there is anybody out there with small unit tactics training, you have a job as a clear team leader. I won't lie to you. If you can get here, it won't be easy. But maybe, just maybe, it will be easier than what you're going through now. By the side of the road, Jacob squeezed his eyes shut and clutched his rifle to his chest. He knew beyond a certainty that what he was hearing couldn't be real. He had watched his town washed away by a torrent of walking death. Fellow citizens, neighbors, friends, co-workers, family had all been altered, replaced by a horrifically obscene facsimile of their former selves. He alone had survived, and that also was obscene to him. Jacob knew that he too had been altered, that who he was now was also just a facsimile of his former self. A lawman wasn't supposed to hunt those he was charged with protecting, wasn't supposed to turn his gun upon them. What had happened to his town, to his family, 
had happened everywhere, and only he remained. He knew all of this, knew that he was powerless to change any of it. He denied that what he was hearing was real. He could not bring himself to confirm it, would not rip open the door to the truck and see the dried-out, eviscerated remains of someone else's friend or neighbor. Words of comfort and hope of survivors were a delusion. His eyes grew heavy, and he slept. <laughs>